Hey, welcome everybody. It's time for another episode of Living Hope, a weekly show designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer, sharing the real life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. With your host, the host with a little, still a little bit of a sniffle today here, like all of us. I don't know what's going through the air, but we're all hunkered down at home rather than being at the studio to be safe. Are you there, Roberta Luna? Yes, thank you. I've been like everybody else, these sniffles, but it's not COVID. I've been tested, it's not COVID. So just a regular cold, I just can't seem to shake it. So thank you for allowing us to do it this way. I need to be safe. And excuse my voice, apparently it's gonna go hoarse as well. So <laughs> today we have Tori Lyric with us. Hi, Tori, how are you? Hi, Roberta. I'm well. How are you doing? Thanks for having good, me. Good, good. No, yeah, happy to, happy to have you. Um, Tori is the patient service manager with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And thank you for joining us today. I know we were hoping to do this in person, but again, we need to be safe for everybody. So I just have so much to talk. I want to talk about with you. I don't know how we're going to fit it all in, but maybe that'll give us a chance to do a second episode or another follow up. Before we do start, though, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at PanCan? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Roberta. Very happy to be on. And yes, hopefully we'll do a part two and in person in the future. So I have been with PanCan for about five years now, coming up next month. I started as a case manager in our patient services department, providing one-on-one support to both family, to families affected by the disease. And started as a case manager and transitioned into my position in management. And I worked in social services for about 10 years, but the reason that I was compelled to join PanCan was I lost my father to the disease in 2004. And I am absolutely all about the mission. Um, I love working with patients um, and I have a personal connection um, and I'm really just here to support patients and families in any way that I can. Um, And I have an incredible team and really excited to talk about clinical trials and clinical trials awareness month. At PanCan in my role in management, I supervise some of our case managers that again, provide that support to those affected by the disease. And then I also oversee our survivor and caregiver network, which is our peer-to-peer have uh, worked very closely to be the liaison for our genome oncology clinical trials database, which is where we can use patients' information from biomarker testing to run biomarker-driven searches. So I've worked very closely with our clinical trials databases in that regard, which we'll dive into a little bit further. Well, that's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> You're really a busy lady. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, I, I, I love patient services. You guys do an awesome job, and thank you for being there and doing that. I'm, I imagine it can't really, I mean, it can't be easy because you hear all these stories how do you manage? How do you deal with that when you hear these and you follow? You're really great about following the stories with, you know, the person so that they're always with the, with the same associate. Yeah. But how do you deal with that on a personal basis? That has to be difficult. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that we really train our team on and that's really important in patient services is practicing self-care. You know, working in social services and providing resources to patients and caregivers. It's important for us to put our mask on before we support others. So that's a huge part of what we do in patient services is making sure that our team is taking care of themselves in addition to supporting others. And just like you mentioned, we work on a case management basis. So with patient services, when you reach out to a case manager, 
you'll be matched with that same case manager and they really support you along the journey and you can pick up where you left off whenever you connect with your case manager. And we, you know, just to kind of answer your question, the resources and information that we provide really give so much hope to those that we connect with. So it's incredibly rewarding. We're able to really follow all of our patients and caregivers give them information that fills in gaps between them and their healthcare team. And it's really very hopeful what we do in advocacy, making sure that they advocate for themselves. So it's it's a balance important to practice self-care, you know, when we're working with patients and caregivers, but what we do is so incredibly rewarding, hopeful. And we, because we are able to work with our families so closely, um, you know, we become a part of their team as well. And all of those triumphs, and each day by day that there's, you know, a, a new glimmer of hope, we're able to be part of that process as well. So it's incredibly rewarding and such the team that we have in patient services, what they're able to provide is really incredible to the families that they support. Yeah, you guys are awesome. And I'm sorry, I just had somebody text me a question. They were wondering, because sometimes, you know, the case managers like yourself, they move on to a different position. So then what happens to that information or how is that passed to another associate to take care of? Yeah, very good question. So that is the case. Sometimes, you know, we have case managers that transition into other departments or other roles within the organization or leave the organization. We make sure that they are matched with another case manager and that they will have that continuum of care. So if you reach out either via email or over the phone, um, and we can provide that information in detail later as well, you will reach the receptionist and or you will reach our email inbox and you will be assigned to the next available case manager. We have a very robust and rigorous training program as well. So all of the case managers are able to provide the same information. So if unfortunately for some reason you aren't matched with the same case manager that you've been working with, we have all of the interactions documented so we can continue to pick up where we left off. And because of that documentation, you can continue from where you were with your previous case manager that you were working with. That's great. So you don't have to go back and repeat your whole story again, because sometimes it can be difficult to go back and talk about or just remember things. So um, you guys do an awesome job. So thank you. Well, January is Clinical Trials Awareness Month, and PANCAN believes that pancreatic cancer patients who participate in clinical trials have a better outcome. Why does participating in the clinical trials provide that patient outcome, that better outcome? Yeah, absolutely. So clinical trials are imperative because they provide new and better treatments for patients prior to them being widely available. And it's also the way that we are going to further research and learn about what works. By participating in a clinical trial and considering them at all points of treatment decision, patients are going to be working with top researchers and doctors and really have a comprehensive care team to support them on their journey. So Clinical trials, again, really provide that access prior to these treatments being readily available and really have that comprehensive approach and further research for the disease and and really finding treatments that are going to potentially work for patients. Yes, I think sometimes people don't understand that every treatment or drug that we use right now had to go through a clinical trial. So it's really important to consider that. Yes. Um, now, the, this gets all gets approved from the Food and Drug Administration, correct? That is correct. 
and I'm happy to kind of talk through the process and phases of testing if you think that Thank you. Yes, I was going to ask you that. So you're perfectly right on cue there. <laughs> awesome. So essentially, that's what a clinical trial is. It's where a combination of drugs or a drug passes through the process to potentially get FDA approval. And there are three phases of testing within a clinical trial. And a drug only moves on to the next phase of testing if it's proven to be safe and effective in the previous phase. So phase one is focusing on dosage, safety, and side effects of the new treatment. And it's usually a small group of patients. Granted that they determine dosage, safety, and side effects, it transitions into phase two, which is further testing safety and efficacy of the drug. So does it work? And it's usually a larger group of patients in phase two. And then once a drug passes through phase one, phase two, it transitions to phase three, which is that final step of testing to determine, is this better than what we already have available? Is it better than the standard of care? And usually this is a very large group of patients. And then technically there is phase four, which is FDA monitoring, but that's once it's actually gone through phases one, two, and three of testing. So clinical trials are at all different points. And when considering clinical trials, that information is transparent and available about what phase the drug is in the testing process to get that FDA approval. And I had a question just come in again. Um, how, how long does that usually take that process take? So it really depends. It can take many years for a drug to get approved. And it can be years that a drug remains in one phase. Of course, there are some that might move faster than that, but it can take upwards of 10 years to potentially get an approval, which is something that you know we, we consider when we're taking a look at barriers to finding new treatments. So it can take a long time to, to get approval. If a drug fails in one of the phases or it doesn't have that response, then the, the drug will stop there. So it won't continue on to the next phases of testing. So there are some drugs that, you know, don't move forward if they're not safe or effective for patients. So it, again, really depends on the drug, but it can take many years for a drug to potentially get approved. Now, is that, I don't, and maybe you don't know this, but is that true for all clinical trials or just dealing with pancreatic cancer? So... Phases of testing, so my understanding is for the majority of drug approvals, it must pass through these phases of testing, specifically with oncology. As far as the length of time for drug development, I couldn't necessarily speak outside of the oncology space, but my understanding is that it, it can take some time to have that transition and, and years for a drug to potentially get approved. Yeah, it's too bad we can't figure a way to do it sooner because we, really, you know, it's hard to wait years to get something, but um, yeah. we have to do, I guess, what's safe and, and make sure that it's going to be, it's going to work. Yeah, exactly. And there so, are ways that, I'm sorry to interrupt, no, 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 please. you know, there are definitely incredible researchers, doctors, organizations, you know, such as PanCan that are trying to find ways to expedite that process with different trial designs. So it's definitely a, a problem that there are many people that are working to address that so that we can move through the clinical trial process faster to get drugs approved faster. But again, it's imperative that it's done safely and that we're truly finding things that may move the needle and improve the lives of patients. Yeah, we don't want to add anything to it to what they're already going through. So when is the best time for patients to consider doing a clinical trial? Is it in the beginning, you know, when nothing else is working, when is the best time for that to happen? 
Good question. And also is one of those myths that you were, you know, that we, that we talk about. So there's kind of a myth that clinical trial consideration should just happen after all treatment has been exhausted or once you've tried other treatments. And that's not the case at all. Clinical trials should be considered at all points in diagnosis. So upon diagnosis, upon starting on treatment, they should be considered at all points. There are clinical trials that are designed for patients at all different points in the journey. Clinical trial eligibility really varies based on each individual trial. So there are trials that are looking for patients that have not yet started on treatment. Mm -hmm. There are trials designed for patients that have been on Gemzar and Abraxane, which is one of the standards of care, and are looking for them to actually have been on that treatment in order to be eligible. And many other examples, those are just two, but it really should be considered at all points in diagnosis. And I'm, I'm happy to kind of talk a little bit about the clinical trials database and kind of how to do that in terms of how to consider trials at all points as well. Yeah, please do. And just before you do, though, because if I don't ask the question when it comes, I for, I will forget. But um, somebody's wanting to know, what if your doctor is not really excited about doing clinical trials? Do you have any advice for that patient, what they can do and how to proceed? Definitely. And unfortunately, this is something that we do here. So if that is you know something that you've experienced, you're not alone. And so one of the things in patient services that we do is really encourage self-advocacy. There needs to be continued awareness about clinical trials. At many of the high-volume institutions, there's an understanding you know, about clinical trials and involvement in clinical trials, but in some settings or some doctors, they may not have access to as many trials. There may not be trials at that particular institution. So one of the things that you really want to do as a patient in terms of advocating for yourself is really clearly communicating that you are one of the goals of, of potential treatment for you is to consider a trial. You're very interested. Sometimes it requires doing research kind of on the back end, which is where patient services come in, comes in. We have the most comprehensive database of pancreatic cancer clinical trials. So we can actually, our team can compile a list that you can take to the doctor that's personalized based on your situation. Um, there are other ways to locate trials as well, but that we are just one resource to be able to do that. And that can help too. So if you're going to your oncologist with a list based on your previous treatment history, specifics about your diagnosis, like stage and type, it helps to minimize some of that back-end legwork of finding a trial. And you can go to the oncologist, take this list and say, you know, I've, I've worked with a case manager. I'm very interested in considering clinical trials. Do you feel that one of these may be appropriate for me? So it's kind of filling in those gaps and, and going to your oncologist and, and doing that work on the back end. And again, there's a team that's here to support you in, in terms of case managers and patient services and to help you navigate those conversations as well. Just because we've also heard that it can be challenging to go to your oncologist and say, this is what I'm really interested in when they're maybe saying otherwise or recommending something else. Also, in addition to that, considering a second opinion as well with a high volume pancreatic cancer specialist, just to have another set of eyes and an opinion about the best next steps in terms of treatment. So you can take that personalized list to your second opinion. Maybe your primary oncologist is recommending moving forward with a, a standard of care treatment, getting that additional opinion, considering clinical trials, getting their perspective about trials, and they may confirm what the primary oncologist has recommended or provide insight into these other options. So 
both the self-advocacy, having that personalized list, having that conversation with the doctor, and then again, considering an additional opinion if maybe they're not open to trials. You know, I have worked with patients where they have had an oncologist that was really adamant about moving forward with, you know, one particular type of treatment, but they were very much interested in participating in a trial. So it took getting a couple opinions or, or working with a new oncologist to really get that guidance and insight. It's also important to note too, that the care when you transition to a trial typically shifts to the study team and the oncologist for that clinical trial. Oh, that's good to know. So would that would change the oncologist and possibly where they are receiving their treatment then? Possibly. If it is a clinical trial associated with an institution that they're not currently going to, usually the primary care is going to be from the study team, the doctors and researchers associated with the clinical trial. You know, they may still be able to consult with their current healthcare team if that's something that they'd like to do, but the primary care does usually shift to the, that of the research team for the, the clinical trial. Oh, good. Thank you. And if you want to go back and make the point, you are sorry, I, I drifted away from it, but I have to ask the question when it appears, otherwise I might forget. So yeah. would walk us through the clinical trial procedure. Yeah. So the clinical, oh, yes, absolutely. Um, so as far as uh, locating a clinical trial through the database and perfect. So essentially what you would do if, if you are interested or you have a loved one that's interested in considering clinical trials, again, at all points in the diagnosis, you can reach out to patient services and you'll get linked up with a case manager. You can also uh, go on the website and submit a clinical trial finder search that way. And based on details like type of pancreatic cancer, stage, previous treatment, anything else that we need to know about the diagnosis, we use that information to run a tailored and personalized search. Also other demographic information like radius, if you want to filter by the phases, some people want to take a look and see all of the trials that may be available to them in phases one, two, and three. Others may want to focus on later phases where there's more known about that particular drug. So we can really tailor the list based on, on interest and need. And then, like I mentioned, radius. So um, travel is a consideration, you know, as well. Typically with trials or going to the site, on average, of course, this varies once weekly. So taking that into account, we can you know, start with 25 miles and extend upwards of that as well. And then we will actually email or send via postal mail, whatever's most convenient for, for the caller or, or those that are corresponding via email. And then they can print or send, however you want to do it, take that list to the oncologist and, and have it reviewed with them. Yeah, it's really a great service that you offer. And I know you can also research clinical trials on your own, but the best advice I can give to anybody is let, you know, the patient services do it only because it can be so overwhelming when you try to do it on your own. And it's nice to have something else taken off your plate and let somebody else do it. So yeah, thank you for providing that source. But if I can give any advice to anybody, please let, let them do the, the research for you and you can just take it after that. I think it's easier. It was for me anyway. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And and just one, just really quickly on, on that note too, you know, we are a completely unbiased educational resource with patient services. So we encourage all kinds of research. If you're doing your own research and, and want to run it by a member of our team, um, although we're not medical professionals and can't provide specific advice or recommendations, we're always happy to 
kind of talk through things. If you um, come across it on your own, the internet can be daunting with how much information is out there. So our team members can always help to talk through anything that you come across. And there, like you mentioned, lots of ways to find trials, but this is a way to really personalize and tailor it. Yeah, it makes it easier. I mean, I, I'd love to keep talking about this because like I said, it's such an interesting subject. And there's so much out there, but I want to get to some of the common myths about clinical trials because I know a lot of times that's what might keep somebody from wanting to do a clinical trial. So I know one of the myths is that patients are treated like guinea pigs. Yes. And this is something that we hear often and one of the primary myths that we want to really debunk. So the clinical trial process is very well monitored and organized. There's something called informed consent. There are documents, there are conversations, so patients truly understand exactly what it is that is entailed in the trial. You know, they're able to have their questions answered. It's a very formal process. So you are aware of what is potentially possible in terms of the clinical trial. So there's a full process. Like I mentioned, it's top researchers and doctors who are really running these clinical trials. They're very well monitored. There's also something called the Institutional Review Board. And these are independent committees that are associated with these institutions that are doing the review and monitoring to make sure that anything that transitions into the trial space is safe for patients. And it's a a very thorough well-defined process that's very patient-centric. So it really is so important as far as that awareness to shift that mindset to it really understanding that trials provide access to new and better treatments for patients prior to them being, you know, widely available. You're working with the, you know, top researchers and doctors. There are these safeguards in place through informed consent, the IRB or institutional review board. So there are lots of mechanisms in place to make sure that it's it's very patient-centric and safe. Of course, with clinical trials, you know, there may be unknown. That is the goal of a clinical trial is to learn, but we are always educating that both the benefits and, and potential risks of considering a clinical trial, but there are so many possible benefits of considering them. Oh, thank you. And I know you touched on this already, but another myth was clinical trials are for patients who have run out of out of options, that it should be a last-ditch um, effort, and we know that's not true, correct? Exactly. Yep. One other thing I want to note about that, too, if someone is currently on treatment and, you know, maybe having a positive response to chemotherapy that they're on or another treatment that they're on, if that is still a good time to consider clinical trials to be prepared for the next treatment decision. So even if you're not ready to enroll, right when you're thinking about a clinical trial, it's good to have that list, be aware of your options, should there be a decision from the healthcare team to look into other options. So that's another important thing to note too. Can you enroll in a clinical trial if it's already started or would you have to wait for something else? Yeah. So usually if you're on treatment, what the oncologist will want to do is keep patient on that treatment to determine how it's working. There's usually a period you can't, most trials, you cannot concurrently enroll while you're on treatment and go into the clinical trial. There's usually something called a washout period, which is a period of time that you're off of one treatment prior to starting a clinical trial. So that's another reason that it's important to be aware of all options so that you have an idea of what may be a good fit for you down the line should they want to switch. Say someone starts progressing on treatment or isn't having the same response that they previously had on on chemotherapy or whatever treatment, 
then they can have that period where they're not on treatment and then transition into a trial. Oh, okay. It's good to know. Thank you. Um, another myth is patients receive a placebo, not a treatment. Can you, for, first, can you explain what a placebo is before you answer that? Yes. I guess I'll kind of start with that misconception too. So a placebo is when there is not a drug that's actually utilized or tested in that particular arm of the trial. So many people assume that with the placebo, that means that they wouldn't receive any treatment or the concept of say a sugar pill where there's nothing that's received. That would never be the case with the pancreatic cancer clinical trial. At the very least, a patient would receive the standard of care. So um, it would be unethical, um, you know, say there were a trial and it was randomized, meaning that information is put into a database and you're randomized to one of the groups in a trial it would never be that the patient would not receive any treatment. Again, it would be at the very least the treatment that's already available and the comparison you know, of that to the experimental drug. So it may be that someone doesn't receive the experimental drug that they're testing, but it would they would always receive some type of treatment within a clinic. Okay, good, thank you. And clinical trials are more expensive for the patient. So yes, this is a qu- another question we, we get all the time. So there are two types Um, So that's not the case. Um, I'll I'll start with that. There are two types of costs associated with clinical trials. There are routine care costs and research costs. So routine care costs have to do with tests, procedures, anything that treatments, anything that would typically be provided if the patient were not enrolled in a clinical trial. And federal law requires that most insurance providers cover these costs. So these are are things that would are, again, that's routine care costs. So things that would already be done for the patient. And there are those safeguards in terms of insurance and laws that insurance should cover that. And then there are research costs. And those are tests, procedures, treatments, anything that's part of the clinical trial. And those are covered by the clinical trial sponsor. And a clinical trial sponsor can be a pharmaceutical company, a particular uh, academic institution and organization, and they cover the cost, the uh, research costs. So based on that, for the most part, of course, there are nuances with insurance and every policy is different and trial is different, but for the most part, both of those costs should be covered. So it wouldn't be expenses beyond typical treatment or the standard of care treatment. So that's another important thing to know. Okay, good. Thank you. And I know another myth is participation in clinical trials is not important, but I think you've already gone through everything and explained why it really is important. And I hate to cut us out, but we are running out of time and this has really been great information. And I really do want to thank you for talking with us today because of January being Clinical Trials Awareness Month. And we wanted to devote this episode to letting people know the importance about clinical trials. You're such an inspiration. I would really love to have you come back sometime and really talk more and more in depth and also get into your own personal story as well, because it's amazing. I just want to share an African proverb with you before we leave. It's, as long as you speak my name, I shall live forever. Today's Living Hope episode is dedicated to your father. Tim Larrick. So thank you very much for being here with us today. And we really do appreciate and I really do want to have you come back because I also I have more questions that people are asking. And so we need to really deal with those at some point. But unfortunately, the time goes by quickly. So thank you. And can I butt in and ask one question as the engineer here today and the producer listening to all this? Do we have a place people can find clinical trials? That's the question I always have. I think there is a national government site, but it lists millions of clinical trials. 
if people want to take the next step and don't just call PanCan but want to explore some themselves, is there a way they can find clinical trials in their area? Yes, definitely. So outside of contacting patient services and, and having us run a search in our database, the database that you're I'm mentioning is called clinicaltrials.gov. Yes. And that is going to be an international database uh, that's really operated by the NCI and NIH that houses the information for all clinical trials all throughout the world, actually. So if, if someone wants to kind of independently do their research, they can definitely take a look on clinicaltrials.gov. There are also other organizations that provide clinical trial navigation as well through individual institutions. If someone is particularly interested in maybe considering a clinical trial at one institution, they can go on the site um, or reach out to those particular institutions. So there are various ways to, to do so. Um, but clinicaltrials.gov is going to be that really international database of trials that people can take a look at and, and search with different parameters as well on their own. All right. Well, that's going to take it out for today here. Thank you so much. I look forward to coming back more and finding out about some clinical trials, maybe in Orange County or Southern California that people aren't aware of that are going on that they might want to participate in. Yes, absolutely. Else. Yeah. Thank you so much, Roberta and Paul. This has been such a pleasure. I would, I would love to come back. And Roberta, you're such a shining light. Thank you for all that you do to support patients. Well, she's bringing the sunlight. She's up in Santa Monica and the sun's shining <laughs> in. It's dark down here in Orange County today here. So. Yeah, so I'll, I'll send the sunlight that way. All right, please oh, do. Yeah, we could use some. All right, thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Tori. Well, there you have it. Another great reason to tune in each and every time to another episode of Living Hope, a weekly show designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education like today's show for those living with pancreatic cancer and those wanting to know more. Sharing the real-life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. If you want more information or need some help, like right now, or want some help finding a clinical trial, contact Patient Services at 877, the number 2, PANCAN, just like it sounds, 877-2-P-A-N-C-A-N, for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And for the OC Talk Radio Network, I'm Paul Roberts, as always, urging you to join us, share the knowledge, tell others, and come back each and every week as we share real-life stories of real people really dealing with this deadly disease. Right here in Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net. Streaming live from the University of California, Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center.